everyone. Welcome to Hardcore Football, an intense look at the world's game by two passionate Americans. I'm your host, Phil Baki, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mika Burrell. Mika, how uh, how we doing tonight? Doing well, Phil. Uh, it's been a little while. Happy February. Yeah. <laughs> we, we completely swerved all of January. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing well. How are you? I am good. I, uh... So I spent I spent a little bit of time this weekend, I'll be honest, uh in in well, what turned out to be a football adjacent space. I was I was watching some esports this weekend, along with soccer, but okay. I was watching some esports and I I found out something. Um I was watching so Apex Legends, for anyone who knows, the the Battle Royale game, they have a pretty intense like competitive scene and they had a big their like big tournament of like this time of year was in London this past weekend teams from all over the world all this stuff I happen upon a little esports organization by the name of J Ling's esports which has a team in this <laughs> contest no for those in not. the know <laughs> J Ling's esports is owned by none other than Jesse Lingard himself. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> wow, the badge, or if you want to call it that, of Jaylings even has his, his celebration, like... the J and the L. We're doing it on camera as if anyone to this can see it. That is incredible. So you were just watching and you saw yeah. So his team and you were like, what is happening? So I I've I've casually like paid attention to their competitive scene for a while, like ever since COVID and stuff, like when we were all on Twitch and we were all like playing just crazy amounts of video games. Um, they've since gone back to like in-person competitions and they had it at the Copper Box in London, which is a venue from the 2012 Olympics. Um and yeah, the first game like loaded in and they were talking about J-Lings. They're like, oh, J-Lings is like moving up here. And I'm like, J-Lings, like why? Like who would name their team J-Lings? Like it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just, yeah, a quick Google search revealed it to be owned and operated by none other than jesse lingard himself which they mentioned a couple of times they were like oh a footballer like jesse lingard like owns this organization whatever we're not sure if jesse's in the building and i was like well he is plying his trade in nottingham these days so i don't know if he has time to stop in for the <laughs> uh for the uh esports tournament over the weekend but anyways um they they had a decent showing, but they they went out in one of the kind of like preliminary rounds, so they they weren't able to to make it to the the finals. But um, so, would you say you're a Jaylings Ultra now, or is that is that a touch too far? <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far. I will say one of the uh, one of the players on Jaylings like went absolutely crazy in like one of the first couple of games, um, and did make it into some like uh, like plays of the tournament type compilations so they got their name uh -huh. out there they 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 made a mark um but maybe not a yeah i mean like jesse lingard they burned bright and then kind of flamed out a little bit over Ouch. the court yeah <laughs> not as much staying power 
Um, but no. Yeah, um, so anyway, spell at West Ham streets won't forget. <laughs> 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 Nearly got that. Well, got them into Europe, I guess. So anyways, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So we're hardcore football. We don't typically talk esports. Uh, in fact, we never do. We talk about football. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, you can find us on any major podcast platform. Um, and, uh, you can also find us at, on Twitter at HXC football, as well as Instagram. Um, I mean, Mika, as far as like stories and places to start, there's really only one place to start, uh, in, in the current news cycle, uh, of the premier league. And that is that the Premier League has accused Manchester City and charged them with more than 100 violations of its financial re- regulations, um, a, a veritable laundry list of rule breaches that it says began more than a decade ago and continue to the present day. Um, Mika, Manchester City said they're surprised by the allegations and that they're uh, waiting to show that... Uh, to basically prove their innocence. They're looking forward to proving their innocence. But I mean, so much has been put online about kind of explaining the charges. You can, you can see videos there from the athletic sky. Like there's, there's all kinds of content out there on like what the charges are and what, uh, what city face. But, um, as, as at sunny Stark eight, uh, on Twitter said, what is your take? on the Premier League versus Manchester City story that broke this week. Yeah. um, I mean, obviously a huge, huge story. And for those who are listening that haven't dug into it, because it is kind of a lot to take in, even in these explainer pieces, it still can get pretty um, muddy, I guess. But really the the accusation from the Premier League is um, that... City have repeatedly failed to provide accurate financial information that gives a true and fair view of the club's financial position, in particular with respect to its revenue, its related parties, and its operating costs. So really what the Premier League is saying here is that uh, Manchester City either have failed to provide it or, or are inaccurately providing numbers about their sponsorship revenue, the um, contracts that they have with players, contracts that they have with managers. I mean, we remember a few years back when I think it was Der Spiegel um, reported that Roberto Mancini had signed two contracts with the club uh, allegedly and that was how he was getting compensated really for doing his one job which was to be the manager of of the football club so um, things like that are, are what the Premier League is looking at and that's obviously an overly broad simplified way of putting it but um, on top of that they're accusing them of not cooperating with the investigation Um and, you know, you might be thinking, how is this different from uh, UEFA's investigation into City, which they were cleared of any wrongdoing? Well, the difference is the Premier League's rules are a lot more lenient when it comes to FFP. So, I mean, they must have... The allegations and what they what they are basing these allegations on, it must be pretty egregious if you can break even more lenient rules. Right. But um, with the UEFA case, they, they won on procedural grounds. They were... Uh, successful in arguing that it was basically too late for UEFA to to punish them because the statute of limitations had run. So um, that's kind of the difference here is it's a different sporting and governing body charging them. And and as for my take, what to answer the actual question, um, 
I mean, is anyone surprised? I don't think so. Uh, I think, I think this will take a while to resolve. I'm, I don't even think months. I think maybe even a year longer. Sure. Um, the investigation itself has been going on for five years, so I think it's a little bit funny when Metro City, Metro City say that they're surprised because it's like, how? It's been going on for years, and you know it. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, but they have to say those things. Um, and yeah, it's it's huge. Obviously, the implications are huge. I mean, Phil, can you tell us what the possible punishments would be? Because I think that's what really people are are looking at. And when I say people, I mean really football fans, fans of Manchester City, fans of opposition clubs. I think this is what they're most interested in. Yeah, I mean, the 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 possibilities in terms of of sanctions have have been kind of they're a little bit all over the place in terms of like what the premier league could could impose on manchester city there are obviously talks of i mean similar to what ended up happening in the uefa case of hefty fines that's probably first and foremost um like where things would probably start They've also discussed, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk online of potential, you know, stripping of past titles and things like that, which I think are things that are possible, but precedent tells us in English football that that isn't typically a route that is taken in terms of delivering sanctions on a club for violating rules, but very real um, potential punishments are points deductions during you know, the period of time when this is delivered. So it may be a points deduction this season. It may be a points deduction in a future season. Um, mm. But it could also include expulsion from the Premier League uh, completely, which is uh, obviously extremely serious, like automatic relegation, essentially. Um, and uh, those... So, I mean, you could see almost an enforced relegation in the way in in the form of a points deduction by like having it be so severe that they couldn't possibly overcome it um or a uh an actual expulsion from the league which would be um obviously the most severe uh like punishment probably taken by the premier league um and it potentially has ramifications like further down the pyramid because as the bylaws of the EFL have also come to light, it's kind of being said that like, well, the EFL wouldn't have to accept a club expelled from the premier league into the football league. So as unlikely as it probably sounds, there is a scenario in which Manchester city were expelled from the premier league and not accepted from the football league by the football league and end up playing, uh, in the sixth tier or something like that, or fifth tier, I guess, um, if uh, the National League is is open to taking them. So there there are many, many different routes. Obviously, this is all a long, long way off, given that there are going to be a, a number of legal challenges. It seems that Manchester City has actually had some legal challenges to the Premier League's investigation already on the grounds that basically the Premier League didn't have jurisdiction to enforce any of these rules, which, uh, unfortunately for for anyone affiliated with City, it seems like they've lost those appeals. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I mean, I think that, I mean, that's, it's kind of by the by, but I think that's an incredible argument because you, sure, the Premier League is not a police body by any stretch of the imagination, but it basically is a contractual relationship that you have with the Premier League and in, in participating in their league. So, um, you know, presumably by agreeing to participate in the league, you're agreeing to follow these rules. And so, um, to turn around and say that if those rules are perhaps not being followed, that they can't, for lack of a better term, prosecute that in some ways is incredible, really. Yeah. Um, and I think what's really interesting is, like, you know, we I guess we're both on the, of the opinion that this will take a while and any, any punishment, if any comes to pass, will take a while. But what's really interesting is, is what's immediately next is um, this referral to the accusations against City to an independent commission. Yes. Um, and that body will will hear the case confidentially. I'm sure there will be someone covering it, leaks or something. But this independent commission, I think, is really interesting. Um, and yeah, I wonder, I wonder what'll happen there. I mean, do you think, Phil, that there's really a realistic possibility that something serious could happen to Manchester City? Because I mean, we've seen this in other leagues, right? I mean, Juventus, Calciopoli, yeah. they literally got relegated. Yeah. Um, do you think that that's you know you mentioned that it's the, the precedent for that in England is not nearly as spelled out and as clear but do you think there's any possibility or is this going to be a slap on the wrist and we, we move along I, I would say given the depth and the impact of, of what we're talking about and I do I want to be really clear like as well just up front about the fact that yes I'm a Liverpool fan and it can be really easy, I think, in this case to get like super tribal and say mm -hmm. like there's a bunch of there's a bunch of teams who have been impacted by Manchester City over the last decade um, or more saying that, you know, I guess 15 years now, um, like where they've won titles, they've won trophies, they've qualified for Europe, all, all of these sorts of things like where they've impacted other teams and it can be really easy to say like, ah, they deserve like X, Y, and Z because of the personal like things that I've felt at their expense. Mm. Um, right. I think the difference here is this is not kind of, you know, I think there has been a segment of city fans that are really quick to say like ah we're being singled out unfairly and like everybody does this and I think it's really important to pull out that like this is very different than the practices of other clubs that they're that they're kind of talking about you know this is not an injection of cash from Todd Bowley this is not um I mean I find it funny that people are talking about the spending practices of Liverpool because <laughs> they've all that Liverpool fans talk about is how little money they've spent um, in, you know, relative to, to their competitors. I think here where it gets really different is the Premier League has really decided to draw a line about the fact that City weren't just investing money in the club and saying, hey, we're like pumping a bunch of money into the club. They truly were using like a system of shell corporations and fake contracts like uh, they were falsifying like values uh, allegedly like obviously mm -hmm. this will all you know this will all have its day in front of the independent commission but this is 
is really serious. And when we're talking about a hundred plus breaches of the Premier League's rules, we're not talking about something that all clubs do. This is very much like a Manchester City issue and a and a like Abu Dhabi issue in that they have like the Premier League spent four years building a case or five years now almost building a case against Manchester City with these all of these potential rules violations so while I don't think all of these like kind of extreme views of like will they be expelled from the league will they be like all this stuff um I think it remains to be seen I think points deduction or like an auto relegation I think that is possible like I think that is in the realm of possibility if all of these things hold up um Mm. Because I think the severity, especially when the Premier League is talking to its other 19 member clubs and the clubs who have been part of the Premier League, you know, in previous years that City were in the league and potentially a loss to Manchester City relegated a team, you know, if they were (laughs) relegated by a small margin or uh, like any of those sorts of things, there's going to be like a lot of aggrieved parties who are going to want um, City to feel like the full force of of what uh what these real rule breaches have meant for for the other member clubs of the premier league and so um will it all hold up remains to be seen you know independent commission will we'll see like what actually comes out of it i'm sure there will be some appeals process as well on the back end um but at the end of the day like this is not you know the premier league coming out and saying ah like we've you know, maybe seen some stuff. It's like they they spent a long time investigating this and building and building a case. And I don't think they would have come forward with something this significant against one of the richest and like I mean, in terms of resources, especially like legally, I don't think they would have come out um if they didn't think that they had a, a significant case against against City. So um i guess we'll see um but the fact that yes there's no time bar or you know statute of limitations on these rule breaches um city kind of ran out the clock on uefa and uh in this case they won't be able to do that and they also can't importantly can't appeal this case to the court of arbitration for sport which is where their appeal against UEFA actually was um, upheld in the fact that they overturned the the ban from European competition, but they were still fined 10 million euros, <laughs> um, which was only reduced from like a 13 million euro fine or something like that. So they were found on, on many of the yeah. rule breaches. They just weren't found on... Uh, some of the more egregious ones that would have like barred them from European competition. So long story short, I don't think the premier league brings this forward unless they're serious about like taking action. Cause um, I think it's, I think it would be foolish like for the premier league to spend all the time and resources if they weren't planning on doing something serious. Yeah, no, you make a great point about the, seeming commitment from the Premier League to really see this through and and the the time and the resources for me is a really interesting point because I wonder 
how far the Premier League would be willing to take this because I think City would take it all the way. They've got a for bottomless sure. pit of cash. You know yeah. what I mean? They have lawyers on retainer for a rumor I saw today was 80,000 80, pounds a day. Like, you can retire off this case <laughs> um, comfortably. You and your, like, several generations of your family. Um, Lord Panic. I mean, Lord Panic will be doing anything but once he collects his uh his fees incredible. off this case <laughs> incredible name for a barrister but um i think i mean it's in my nature to play devil's advocate i do it for a living and i guess the part to me that i think is a little bit interesting and i'm curious to see how the premier league try to tackle this issue is how do you prove that sponsorship revenue was inflated because I mean, anyone can understand that when the club is getting sponsorship revenue from a company that, you know, the, both sides of the purse are owned by the same person, you know, right. it's one pocket from, you know, your right pocket to your left. I think we can all see how that's problematic. But the amount itself, how do you prove that's inflated? Sure. And I'm not saying it's not possible. It's just that's an expensive endeavor because you're going to have to get experts to testify like this is how much a you know, a, uh, I don't even know what you would call it. a contract with Emirates should cost, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Or whatever, or yeah. the, how much sponsorship revenue you should get from something like this. Yeah. Compare that to, I don't know what deal Arsenal has with Emirates, you know, that's, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, and, and it's not like you can't prove these things or at least argue about them. I just feel like it's a very expensive endeavor that, that these two parties are going down. Deloitte, so I'm just wondering. Deloitte if, if, consultants are just licking their chops, <laughs> waiting to weigh yeah, in on I the mean, valuations expert, of <laughs> Etihad. Witnesses, yeah, expert witnesses are are very expensive, and that's just practically speaking. That's the part that I'm very interested in. Is practically how far are both these parties willing to take this? Because I see City fighting tooth and nail, but can the Premier League? I mean, the Premier League ostensibly should be able to weather this expensive kind of fight if they were going to bring it in the first place. But yeah. I just wonder if at some point it becomes scorched earth and they settle and there's yeah. really no, you know, punishment. So I'm holding my breath. I don't think that there's going to be a relegation or anything like that. I think that that is, um, that's insane. <laughs> um, like, and not to say, and I don't mean insane as in I disagree with it necessarily. Um, I just I just can't fathom it, I guess. Right. Um, but I'm really, really interested to see how far both these parties can take it. Yeah, it will be interesting. I think like the the contracts will be where there's potential where there's potential issue in terms of like uh I know like a big part of UEFA's case was around player rights, um, like image rights and things like that being paid out from different sources. And basically, I know Sergio Aguero was like brought up at the time of basically he was being paid his paycheck from Manchester City for a certain amount. And then some, you know, like some company in uh, the Cayman Islands was paying his like player image rights, uh, like in a separate check, sure. basically. And I think that sort of paper trail is like probably what will get city in trouble if it exists like you know right. if it's and, out and there you, yeah and you might ask someone listening to this might ask why would they do that 
it's so that you can say that the player is on a cheaper wage than they are because yeah. really their wage is only one part of the compensation they're getting from the club. Yeah. And the um, money and going is, out is less than Right. When you're doing it for FFP reasons, like exactly. your books look better than in actuality you're way outspending your the club's mm-hmm. revenue, but on paper it all looks good cuz your company's only spending a certain amount. Right, exactly. So Yeah. It is going to be very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> we check back in next February for the update on what's gone on with <laughs> <laughs> Um yeah, we'll see we'll see how it goes. I'm sure it'll be a long process, but um the the Premier League despite that being like the headline news and like breaking news in the Premier League, there is still a ton of other stuff going on. And uh, I mean, the this past weekend kind of started with this headline match of uh, Arsenal, top of the league, t- title challengers traveling to Goodison and uh, there to greet them. Sean Dyche, uh, newly appointed Everton manager, following the sacking of Frank Lampard. And Mika, I mean, the Gunners came up against a a re-energized and rejuvenated Everton, um, and they got diced. <laughs> yeah, 70% possession Arsenal had and lost 1-0. Um, got diced indeed. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm a gooner. It's a disappointing result. I feel especially aggrieved that this Arsenal side didn't have a go at Frank Lampard's Everton. I think that's unfair. Uh, and I am yeah. jealous of everyone else who got to play Frank Lampard's Everton because this is what happens when you get someone in who is competent. Um, and I'm sorry that if that is harsh, it is harsh, I know, but... I mean, I thought the way Daesh approached the game was brilliant. This 4-5-1, I hate to say it, but it worked in absolute treat. Completely dominated, stifled midfield. Um, and, of course, the two former Burnley men combined for the goal. Uh, yeah. McNeil, who's looked, I mean, close to useless, really, for Everton uh, for a lot of the season. He assists uh, Tarkovsky's goal, uh, and that's all that they needed to win the game. Um, and yeah, I think Everton just, they managed the game really well. They, again, they, they made the pitch kind of small when they were off the ball uh, and then broke pretty effectively when they were on it. I thought Calvert-Lewin looked really good as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, new manager bounce and all that, but I do think Sean Dyche is just really good at organizing a team. Uh, he's a good manager. Uh, may not be everyone's cup of tea stylistically, but it works. Um, and I mean, for... For all of the compliments I can give Everton, I will say that I think Arsenal were just off it. Um, I think maybe another day uh, when when more players are are not having a bad day all at once, uh, you know, we might get at these. I think Martinelli has kind of been in a little bit rocky form since probably the Derby. I think Ben White didn't have a banner day. He looked very exhausted, actually. Um, and overall, I think they just moved the ball way too slowly. Uh, and against a team that are this organized and this compact, you have to move the ball fast while they're out of their shape. You can't let them drop into that shape that keeps things compact and keeps the lines really, really narrow. So, um, yeah, I think 
it's nothing to overreact about. It is disappointing, but um, it's not surprising either. I think Sean Dyer's always going to win his first game at Everton. Uh, Everton always seemed to win. I mean, now that I think about it, don't they always win when they hire somebody new? So Pretty much. Um, yeah, so new manager bounce and all that. I mean, fair play to them. Um, and now they have Liverpool next, Merseyside Derby. So it's been it's not been an easy start for Sean Dyche. So uh, this is about as good as it could have gone, I think. Yeah, I uh, I I think you're right. And the tough thing the tough thing with Everton is that they were never supposed to be as bad as it like as it got. And when you look across the team, like yeah, there's a lot of like. There's a lot of players in here that probably aren't good enough for what Everton were trying to do, um, which, you know, when Mashiri talk and all that, it's like they were trying to, you know, challenge the the top six, etc. Like, but when you look across this team, like, it's not relegation fodder. Like, it shouldn't be anyways. No. Um, and, I mean, one of the simplest things that Sean Dyche has done is he comes in and... Awobi goes back out to the wing, out of out of central midfield, and he gets Decore, Adrisaganage, and Amadou Anana like in there, just doing doing the hard work, like yeah. And and it, I don't know the the whole thing. It it does reek a little bit of like a guy, a, someone competent watched from the outside looking in and said like, I know how to get this team at least competing Mm -hmm. in the short term and that's and that's exactly what happened was it was it pretty absolutely not but this is the sort of result that Everton used to be like well known for is making Goodison a tough place to go um you know sneak a goal like see what you can do stay solid defensively like they're they've never been that team to like blow people away especially like the teams with you know you can't set up that way against Arteta's arsenal. They will pick you apart. Um, and so, yeah, he set up really solid. The bank of five in midfield was, was good. Dwight McNeil in his first game back under, under Sean Dyche has equaled his goal involvement tally from the 21, 22 season in 38 games under Sean Dyche. Um, one assist that was also what he tallied in that entire season. Um, <laughs> so he's already equaled it. Um, but yeah, I think I don't think that it's gonna be like smooth sailing for Everton necessarily, though, from here on out. I think it is gonna be tough. I think they're gonna have games that they get, you know, they fall back into some old habits, like. I think they had a little bit of a a perfect storm here, like you said, of like Arsenal weren't at their best and they caught the new manager bounce like right at the right time. Probably to some, I mean, there's a handful of discussions just around like some of the officiating and things like that. Like there's some things (laughs) in there that, you know, you could point to. So I think it is a little bit of a perfect storm. Everton are definitely like not out of the woods in the sense that like they've they've still got some some very hard work to do to like get out of the relegation conversation um but with the teams around them you almost as much as i hate to say i say it through gritted teeth like you almost back sean dyche to like 
navigate this just given like how the teams around them are maybe not as uh not as put together but and when i say that i am mostly talking about leads but we'll get on to that uh (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah for arsenal though mika the question now becomes i mean we saw and we'll get on to to city's result um at the the tottenham hotspur stadium but um that five point gap they still have a game in hand so i mean still pretty comfortable all things considered like given the fact that this was not where Arsenal were predicted to be. But how are you feeling as a gooner with Arsenal top of the league in February? Um, like, how is how is it? And, like, what are the realistic prospects about Arsenal? Like, can they, like, will they see it out? Yeah, I mean, across Arsenal centric media is pretty much now accepted that we are in a title race I think it took everyone a while to really come to grips with that I know I have spoken on the this podcast in past months about look I'm just focus on top four we'll see but you know when you're in February and five points clear with a game in hand it's definitely a possibility and I think that I think the clubs see it that way too, given what they did in January, reinforcing in every area that they needed to on the pitch. They sense the opportunity as as much as the fans do. So um, it's really exciting. It really is. And um, I think this result will have felt a lot worse if City had gotten a result at Spurs and they didn't. So really, it's kind of like no harm, no foul. And I guess we could talk about City Spurs now because Spurs did Arsenal a big favor in the title race. Yeah, um, a one nil, another one nil result. Uh, Spurs getting the win at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, courtesy of Harry Kane's two hundredth goal um, for the club as well. Um, little bit, little bit of a, a just an odd game in terms of uh, again, City definitely, definitely not at their best. Um, Christian Romero sent off for Tottenham late on in proceedings but um but overall it felt like it felt a little bit weird watching this because it felt like a a match last year that city absolutely find a way to win and for whatever reason no matter all the patterns look like they do you know they have like a lot of the similar things that they're putting together they're getting the ball in the like familiar areas and there's buildups that are happening where you're like this is a city goal like this is what a city goal looks like and it just all of it just ended up being like a half yard off a half step off um and uh and yet spurs i think credit has to go to spurs for the fact that they actually now have they kind of have city's number at the Tottenham Hotspur stadium. It's been, uh, three straight, I believe, um, that, that Spurs have, have won, um, over city at home. Um, I don't even think city have scored a goal at the Hotspur stadium in like three or four games or something crazy like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird that, that Spurs are City's bogey team, but I think there's something tactically about Spurs that just doesn't allow City to function in the way that they would like. And I have to be honest, when I saw the the starting 11s 
drop, I said Spurs are going to win this game. And the reason being is City, it, it just felt very top-heavy to me, the, sure. the lineup, because they have, of course, Holland leading the line, Alvarez playing just off him, Mares, Grealish, Silva. That That's a lot of attacking talent, and therefore that's a lot of pressure to put Rodri under. And unfortunately, Rodri's the one that makes a mistake for Harry Kane's record-breaking goal that, that you know, helps him to surpass Jimmy Greaves as Spurs' all-time scorer and um, ultimately seals all three points. So, I mean, and it's not just Rodri that, that causes the situation, but he does not play the ball out correctly and it gets put back into his own net pretty much from the edge of his area. So... Um, yeah, I just felt that that was a lot of pressure to put that one man essentially midfield under. But at the same time, those five players, none of them, I mean, except for Holland, who really couldn't find space, but none of them are really like pace monsters per se. Sure. So there wasn't really a lot of, it, City weren't stretching the game. They looked very static almost, which yeah. is weird to say about a City side because they move the ball pretty quickly. Um, you know, they want to have the ball at all times. And it just, I, I don't know. I mean, Grealish was drawing a lot of fouls and everything, but I mean, that's not really what City are wanting to do. They're wanting to get in behind and get to the byline and, and um, or, you know, the goal line and, and square it for easy mm-hmm. tap-ins for Holland. At least that's what they should be doing. Um, and yeah, and Holland was non-existent. I mean, and not for his own fault. He just wasn't getting any service. Uh, so I just don't think that the the selections really worked, and a lot of pace has left this city side um, over the past couple transfer windows. I mean, there's no. I really didn't even see a game changer on the bench necessarily. I mean, they bring on Kevin De Bruyne, they bring on El Kegontoan, but um, you know, other than that, they didn't really have like a there. You know, there's no Raheem Sterling anymore. There's no. <laughs> Gabriel Jesus, Zinchenko, like a lot of those like game breakers per se. Yeah. Um, they don't have those anymore. And and you know, I feel kind of silly saying this because City will win more times than not anyway. This is still an incredible, incredible lineup. But every now and then, like they do need a little bit something else. Yeah. Um, a little more uh like Maverick play, and I think that's what they thought they were getting with Grealish. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, and he was fine. He was fine, but like fine's yeah. not good enough when you're you're playing this three five one three four two one with Spurs. Yeah. Um. And yeah. I mean, and then on on the Spurs side of the ball, I mean, a lot of their players had banner days. This is the best I've ever seen Emerson Royale play for Spurs. Like ever by, by a distance, unfortunately <laughs> for yeah, him. Yeah, he was excellent. <laughs> yeah, he was excellent. Um, Human Son like didn't score didn't assist or anything, but looked closer to what we expect of him. I thought Pyramid Hoiberg was really good as well. Um yeah, I mean Spurs Spurs just managed this game. Yeah. Without really needing to have too much of the ball. <laughs> um, yeah. and yeah, and pounced on the mistake from City and, and that was it. So Yeah, there's an interesting thing in this team selection from Pep where I think like Jack Grealish to me in like on the left for City is just doing what Bernardo Silva does, but like a degree less. Because now Bernardo Silva's like now they they have him further infield, like they have him trying to play in central midfield, 
And I feel like all of the things that Bernardo Silva did that made him such a, just a nightmare to play against are kind of like neutered a little bit mm. with, with Grealish out there. Cause Grealish is kind of like out in that space, like trying to do stuff. Um, and I think the you talked about like the wild card element and it feels like Alvarez is meant to be that guy. Mm. Like he's meant to be like kind of the, this foil to Holland where Holland is just like the blunt, you know, the blunt object of like, this is how we put the ball in the net. Um, but Alvarez is supposed to be kind of the chaos guy and it's just not, it's not enough. Cause with everybody around him, like Grealish and Mares, for all of their quality, they have like a handful of things that they do. Um, and I just, yeah, to your point, like it wasn't enough to move around a Spurs side that admittedly is going to set up. Like, I mean, it's even funny looking at it. Cause you're like, okay, there are eight players there are eight outfield players like in the side designed specifically for defending against city. <laughs> and, and like, even in their subs, like they bring out, obviously like the red card enforces some of the changes, but it's like, they bring on Davis and Sanchez, Ryan Sessegnon and Yves Basuma. Pedro Porro, their new signing is on the bench. Arno Danjuma, their new signing is on the bench. Richarlison is on yeah. the bench. They did not bring yeah. on anybody to change the game in an attacking way. They were like, we have a one goal lead inside 15 minutes. We are going to just make this a nightmare for City <laughs> to try to play through. And they did. They gummed up the works for for the better part of, you know, 75 minutes after they get the opener. And um, Obviously, Antonio. The one note here is that Antonio Conte uh, was was not present for the game because he just underwent like a a surgery to remove his gallbladder. I think, I think. that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So he had been going through some health issues. So his uh his assistant Christian Stellini uh was on was on the sideline um as the manager for this one. But um, despite Antonio not being there, this was the blueprint again from from Spurs um from Conte saying we're just going to make this we're going <laughs> to we're going to make it impossible to play through us and uh and they get the job done uh 1-0 and in a game where I'm sure there were some Tottenham fans online um saying they would rather lose to City if it meant <laughs> Arsenal <laughs> Arsenal lost ground in the title race but such is the nature of of rivalries yeah yeah i mean it's it's funny some of the jokes that are going around i saw i don't know if you saw phil i retweeted um this really cursed image of like an arsenal badge with the spurs cockerel in the middle i was like all right we're going way too far like (laughs) someone needs a beat down oh that's that's but um, i'm not affiliated in any way and that it it makes your skin crawl a little bit truly yeah (laughs) But no, yeah, I mean, obviously the the result favors Arsenal very much. Um, still have to play City two more times though, so uh, we'll see how it goes. And now with this this whole Premier League FFP charge, I mean, you wonder if this this can either spiral City season further or they can dig their heels in and start yeah. battering folks out of anger. So we'll just have to see. I. Uh... Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting, and uh, I'm sure there, you know, 
there are a few city players who are like, so that's why my checks are coming in from Barbados or whatever. Like, <laughs> I was going to say Barbados. Why does Barbados always catch a stray? There's so many offshore havens, but Barbados, for some reason. Like... I've, I've hit the Cayman Islands already, so I was like, I got to go. I got to go elsewhere, but. <laughs> the Bahamas. Right. Oh, my um, goodness. Well, someone who could not find a haven, unfortunately, from their, their troubles uh, as we head down to the other end of the table, Leeds United parted ways with Jesse Marsh after their uh, disappointing defeat on Sunday to relegation rivals Nottingham Forest, which I don't know if we can even call them relegation rivals anymore because I think Forest are like seven points clear of Leeds, but... Um, they are one place above the bottom three in the Premier League. Um, and a club statement read on Monday that Leeds United can confirm head coach Jesse Marsh has been relieved of his duties. Jesse joined the club in February 2022 and was instrumental in keeping the club in the Premier League on the final day of last season. Rene Merrick, Cameron Toshak, and Pierre Beru will also leave the club. We would like to thank Jesse and his backroom staff for their efforts and wish them well in the future. Um, so, pretty pretty terse to the point not a lot of emotion in Leeds United statement but obviously being being Americans ourselves like Jesse Marsh it's been just a strange stint for him last couple of years in in Europe he has this kind of like meteoric rise going from you know New York Red Bulls to uh Salzburg has this like run in the champions league couple of good results like makes it you know they qualify for the knockouts like there's all these kind of like famous there's this famous uh like halftime speech at anfield like inspiring um their uh like near near comeback there and all these things and he gets the job at leipzig and then it quickly goes wrong like leipzig it just isn't doesn't seem to be a good fit he talks about like not really connecting with the players and stuff and basically like in a very short time after he started he's out there he's targeted by leads following following the uh their sacking of marcelo bielsa because they think like ah similar style they're get they're bringing in a guy with kind of similar ideas to marcelo but freshen things up bring kind of a like new perspective and now here we are basically just one year um, after his appointment and uh, and Marsh is out. So one of the highest flying American managers, but it's it's been so short lived. What do you make of, of Marsh's time at Leeds and, and was it time for Leeds to move on? Yeah, it's obviously a shame as an American. Obviously, we, I wanted Jesse to Jesse like we're friends. <laughs> um, I obviously wanted him to succeed wherever he was managing uh, because I think it's just a, you know, feather in the cap for the United States as a footballing nation, an emerging footballing nation. Um, I think he's a great source of pride, his his story really coming from Wisconsin where, you know, it's not exactly a soccer hotbed uh, to managing one of the biggest, oldest clubs in England in Leeds United um, and, and managed some big clubs along the way there too. So it is unfortunate what's happened. Is it deserved and, and expected? I think so. Um, because, you know, I posed the question on Twitter the other day and it got quite a lot of responses and, and interaction, which of course we're always so grateful for. But I, I basically posed the question, you know, is it is it possible that Jesse Marsh's 
simultaneously unlucky and not good enough. And, you know, I think that those two things can be true because, I mean, even take this game against Nottingham Forest. Leeds created chances. That first half was open. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they were thwarted by really fine margins. And I've seen a lot of games like this from Leeds United in, in Jesse Marsh's tenure where things are just, like, not going in the damn net and they are creating chances and it's just not happening for them. And, um, you know, that's where the unlucky versus not good enough kind of comes from is like it's not going in but at the same time why what is it about your coaching that is not making these players more incisive and more deadly right um because you know that's the other part of this is victor orta who the the sporting director at leeds united has had his eye on jesse marsh for several years before bringing him in he sold it to the the club that this would be the natural successor to marcelo bielsa And, and in a lot of ways that that did make sense on paper um, as as far as like the play style, the the high pressing, the intensity, um, and and you know the work ethic of the side. Um, but yeah, the, just the incisiveness wasn't there. And I think a lot of players, to be fair, like if if some of these Leeds United players are honest, they will tell the next manager that they feel they let the the manager down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I I do think that's part of it too. I think there are players in this side that were just not performing. Yeah. Um. And again, like again, catch twenty two, right? Like they're not performing, but also why isn't the manager getting better performances out of them? Kind of thing. Um. I do feel just really mixed up about this one, but ultimately, I do think that Leeds had to make this decision, uh, if they want to stay up, you know, and and yeah. jolt this team into a response. Um. And so, what Leeds United do next, I think, is really interesting and. Um, something that that everyone will surely be watching for. But what's next for Jesse Marsh, too, because that's now two sackings at two pretty big clubs, high-profile clubs, and um, his stock, I think, in Europe is pretty low. Yeah. Um, And, of course, the natural narrative is going to shift too well. The United States men's national team is looking for a coach. And um, I think if you asked me that a year ago, like I'd be a little bit warmer to the idea. Sure, but the more that I've seen of of him, I wonder if he really is more cut out for the club game, um, because his his tactics and things like that. I mean, I, I just don't know that it's conducive to a national team environment. But I mean, people who make a lot more money and have a lot more data at their disposal are are supposed to know these things and make those decisions. So, um, yeah, I think I think Leeds United really had their hand forced, and it's just unfortunate. Yeah, it. It is interesting. I mean, in these sorts of situations, I do look at, I try to look at, uh, I mean, Understat is a really good resource in terms of like, mm-hmm. where is this team relative to, you know, how many goals they should score, how many goals they should allow, and then like just expected points um, based on their results and like XG in those games. And Leeds, interestingly, they are underperforming their XG by about a goal and a half. So mm. not not significant, like not something that you would like scream at necessarily. They also have like a, I mean, their XG is not great, um, but it is kind of middle of the pack. Like um, they're like 11th for mm. XG created. Um. Their expected goals against, they're defensively, they haven't been great. Um, they're 
in like they're like sixth from the bottom um in expected goals allowed so defensively they definitely haven't been great and they are they've allowed like a goal and a half more than they should have um based on their expected goals allowed so they're uh, you know they're underperforming in scoring they're underperforming in defending and then just based off of that like slight underperformance their expected points they actually should have eight more points based on the expected goals in the games that they've played in so you think about like eight points better off they actually would be like comfortably out of the relegation fight and more like mid-table um they actually (laughs) they actually are only a couple of expected points off of chelsea um so i mean they they would be in a very different conversation. So it's interesting to see like the margins, but I think at the end of the day, the other, the other thing that's, that's bit Jesse Marsh. And I think, I think things that now as these like pieces get written about kind of like how things ended and, you know, people do these like postmortems and things like that. And it's like, there was a lot of conversation about how Jesse Marsh was kind of like, uh, cheerleader in many ways like there were some platitudes and like maybe not as many like concrete ideas behind like what was going in on the actual footballing side it's like are you saying vibes yeah like he kind of gets labeled (laughs) as a vibes guy um and which is Mm -hmm. tough and I don't know I don't know how much of it is fair given the fact that like the football probably yo there is a lot of culpability from the players in terms of like you said, like there's some significant underperformance here, but at a certain point, as you say, when is it the manager's job to get, to get that performance out? And, uh, and unfortunately Jesse Marsh falls victim to that. I think as for what's next, I do, I do think, I I feel like he's destined to go to a MLS club next. I think like he takes some time it's tough but i i i just i don't see another i mean unless unless he goes lower league um europe he could maybe maybe uh a germany listen if if there is room for Scott Parker at a big belgian club i think Jesse Marsh <laughs> could probably wing a job like that too. true true Okay, so yeah, we could say like second <laughs> tier, top like top tier, you know, like Belgium, maybe like Netherlands, mm. Portugal, like. Sure. Yeah. Not one of probably not one of the big big teams. Switzerland. Yeah. Yeah. Um. David so it could be that. It could be that. Yeah, David Wagner is. I mean, he's basically like re- resurrected his career. Um. Mm-hmm. in switzerland at young boys and then now he's he went somewhere i want to say david wagner he is in the championship isn't he at norwich he went to norwich that's right yeah yeah mm-hmm. so i um, mean hey he's kind of back to where he was yeah because he was obviously with huddersfield town before so yeah yeah well David Wagner, uh, Borussia Dortmund connection, 
to our next club that we're going to talk about, <laughs> much to my chagrin. But Liverpool lost 3-0 to Wolves uh, at Molyneux over the weekend. And the question is, I mean, at Ebout 27, I there's a lot of talk of about Liverpool, like, but... Eric breaks it down and just says, it's clear Liverpool will need a big summer to get back to the standards they've set these past couple seasons. Who do you think the club needs to move on from in order to do that? Or if it's easier, who should the club keep? Um, I mean, it's tough to say, but is there anyone from as a neutral, Mika, that like stands out as you're like, why haven't Liverpool like move this person on or like why why is this person like still turning out for Liverpool I, I've never thought of Liverpool's issues as people who are there like needing to leave yeah I think it's that they've taken their eye off the ball in terms of incomings yeah um, and that's not to say Liverpool haven't made any signings of course they have Darwin Nunez Cody Gakpo but it's really just midfield for me that is like that's where the turnover has been required yeah. for a while now. And um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with having Tiago Alcantara, Jordan Henderson, Fabinho is only 29 years old. is just in shocking form. But like players like that, like no one needs to leave. They just need to not be the starters. Yeah. I mean, that, that midfield needs reinvigoration, reinvention even. Um, so yeah, there's no one in the Liverpool side that I'm like, you're a trash. You gotta go. Like, yeah. I don't feel that way anyway. I think the, the, the problems really are just so wide ranging. I mean, the missing out on the quadruple last season, playing all those games, playing every single game you could, you know, that's, mm-hmm. and then that emotional fallout from that of not going all the way in, in two out of four you know right um Klopp you know getting I mean I feel kind of bad saying this because I don't think that it's a problem if if he had if the squad had been refreshed probably to his liking but like just now they're calling it like a tactical inflexibility and it's like Mm -hmm. That it's not though like if the players (laughs) can do it right but yeah I mean maybe there is a bit of that of like not playing a different way to to sure. address the current problems at least in the short term and he's becoming like increasingly more spiky in his press conferences and saying things that are getting cut up and memed to death um mm-hmm. and you know the the questions about ownership are they going to sell are they going to just have some minority partners what are they going to do um and just again failing to address i think the the bigger problems with um the squad makeup um, and then the signings recently not necessarily hitting the ground running. I mean, I think Darwin Nunez's problems are are overblown, but there he's. I I think you want more from him relative to the number of chances that he gets. Right. Uh, and so I I certainly see that. I think Cody Hakpo's come into a really difficult situation and not really like settling in any one like position necessarily. It seems like Klopp's trying to figure out where to play him best. Um, cause his skill set is unique and uh, it's unique relative to like his build and stuff. Cause he's yeah. like a very big guy, but like also very direct, good dribbler strikes the ball really well. Who do you move around to accommodate him? He's not really hit the ground running. And so that's kind of, you know, just another thing that Liverpool have to contend with. And 
um, the porousness at the back. I mean, you know, Virgil van Dijk is injured, so we have to put that out there. Like that, that stability, sure. Liverpool are not. They're not getting to use their full complement of players with the injuries they have. But Gomez and Matip, like just in this game against Wolves, just absolutely shocking. Like some of the plays that were so avoidable if they just like sprinted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that sounds really like it's overly simplistic, and maybe it is, but I mean, there are just a couple. Um, I mean, the first goal, like Matip, I think probably could intervene quicker, mm-hmm. most likely, or at least not let the ball get into that area yeah. where it could then be um, cut back and, and what does it flick off his thigh and into the goal? Yeah. Um. So, you know, just not good enough. Joe Gomez, nightmare, nightmare game. I mean, the the third goal, at first I was like, oh, that's, that's by Setic, like... He just isn't strong enough. He can't turn on the ball. But really, it's like a, a horrific pass from Joe Gomez to yeah. him in that situation under pressure. And so, I mean, just everything is not working. Um, right. And then up top, Mo Salah, like, it's really weird because Mo Salah is still getting into the box with regularity and, and having a lot of touches in the box. I mean, statistically, he's up there, but he's just not, like, finishing. And I that goes back to, like, AFCON? Maybe, um, as far as this just drop off, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a myriad thing. So it's not, yeah, for me, Eric, it's not really like who needs to go. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think anyone needs to like be kicked to the curb immediately. I think there just needs to be more incomings really. Yeah. Um, and some like serious rejuvenation, but I don't know that that can be addressed in one summer, given how many windows have gone without addressing it. Right. If that makes sense. So long-winded but that's kind of my thoughts on it as an outsider (laughs) yeah no and I think you I think you summed a lot of things up I think the lack of rejuvenation to me is is a a, the biggest issue across like a number of departments and it it goes I think the fact that Stefan Bajcetic is starting week in and week out for Liverpool right now he is a wonderful footballer and I think he will have an amazing career he he looks like he has all of the tools to one day be a complete midfielder. But I think it just captures just how wrong Liverpool have got it, that he's, he has to be the guy. It's not that he's becoming the guy. It's that he has to be the guy because Mm -hmm. Fabinho is absolutely tragic at the moment. Like everything he touches turns to shit. Um, And so there's just like, there's so many there were so many opportunities to make it where Bychetich could be this kind of you know this this mercurial sort of like this kid who's coming up and like oh like there's whispers about how well he plays for the U21s and all this stuff it's mm-hmm. like nope straight into the first team like figure it out uh <laughs> like and he's done he's done well enough i think like there are times where he shows his age and just like he's coming to mm-hmm. grips with playing professional football every single week um but the the fact that the burden is on his shoulders is an indictment of what liverpool have done uh business-wise over the last three years um and i think particularly january it it just like is so stunning for for a team that under michael edwards were quiet 
in the business that they were doing, but they were always moving. They were mm-hmm. always like the Fabinho deal, like oddly enough, is one that always comes to mind. And this is a summer transaction, so maybe it's not the best analogy or anything like that. But nobody reported the Fabinho deal before Liverpool announced it on their official <laughs> socials. Like there wasn't yeah. a leak. There wasn't a rumor or whatever. And everybody was like, we need a DM. We need a DM. We need a DM. And they went and got one of the best defensive midfielders available without any fuss like no questions asked there were no rumors there was nothing it was just deal done like and we went and got the the player that we wanted I think the tough thing from there was like okay if we either do a deal like that or we don't do anything Mm -hmm. and that has become really difficult because there are a number of midfielders now available I would I would say available in the sense that Liverpool could afford to buy them. Um like sensible sort of transfer numbers, not you know, I'm talking like between 40 and 60 million, you know, not like not 80, 90, 100, but when you yeah. talk about the likes of like Manu Kone Kefren Taram, like there are midfielders out there doing a job for clubs that are, that would have made a difference in January. Yeah. And I, I don't think if, I don't think there's a, a, a world out there where if you held 30 million pounds or 40 million pounds in front of Borussia Mönchengladbach, I, I don't think there's a world in which Manu Kone doesn't had to like, to England like I think I think those are eminently doable deals I I'm no expert but I'm just saying like yeah there is value in the market like just because Caicedo is off the market and totally unattainable doesn't mean there's no one right um and I mean and then there's the other part of that too though about Liverpool is they've also been just like unlucky because they did try to address it with Artur Mello and yeah. now he's just broken, <laughs> you know? He'll never play again. <laughs> he's just like, yeah. So there is a lot of stuff. I think at the heart of it, the rejuvenation that Liverpool most have fouled up, and it goes with the the potential sale. It goes with the ownership uncertainty. It goes with, I mean, even stretching back to into uh, your other f- favorite sport, hockey like their FSG's acquisition of the Pittsburgh Penguins like there's a lot of non-football related stuff that is all tied up in this and I think the rejuvenation that they most fouled up and that they most that has most impacted like what we're seeing at Liverpool right now is specifically the succession plan from Michael Edwards to Julian Ward to question mark um ah, yes. because okay. Michael Edwards you know it was known that he was leaving Julian Ward was like his natural successor the season that Julian Ward takes over he's like yeah I'm done too and like this is it for me um and they're just letting him like serve out his notice period basically with no replacement they're not like oh okay we should probably figure something else out because this guy's a lame duck. It's like, 
no, we'll just ride with this and then whatever happens, happens. So like, I just, I just can't think of a world where, you know, I'm sure Julian Ward is like an, one of the, in utmost professional, he gets shouted out by Klopp in getting the Gokpo deal done. Um, but you can't tell me that like you can look back on these last two transfer windows and say, you know, uh, Nunez, Gakpo, job done, like team refreshed. Um, and yeah, I think they've just, they've fouled up the, the one thing that made recruitment at Liverpool go from like meme to dream, which was like giving (laughs) Michael Edwards the, the reins. They didn't, they didn't plan for his departure in the way that they should have. And they definitely haven't planned for Julian Ward's departure. Um, and there's all kinds of like FSG stuff with Mike Gordon taking a step back from being like the CEO of Liverpool and be and he's now like managing the sale and all. There's all kinds of stuff that is going on behind the scenes that I'm sure is just not doing any favors to Klopp and the boys where Klopp is used to having this like robust infrastructure of supporting front office folks. And now it's kind of just him. <laughs> like he walks into the office and it's just he's like, it's like, you know, coming in on a Saturday. <laughs> Ghost town. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that's no. that's where I think Liverpool have really it's been more about like the behind the scenes stuff than. Than about like anything with the playing staff unfortunately i wish it were that simple to say like oh this guy sucks he shouldn't play anymore it's like there's so many other decisions that they've gotten wrong it's yeah and it's just like the i think the thing that is most disheartening about it if you're a liverpool fan and i mean i realize i'm speaking for liverpool fans in a way by saying this but like it didn't have to be this way i think that's the worst part because you can, I mean, clubs have found ways to continue being successful over years and years and years, and we'll count City out of that because that might all be a scam for all we know. <laughs> but, I mean, like, Liverpool were at their peak and took their eye off the ball, and that's what's so, like, disheartening about it. It's like yeah. you cannot rest on your laurels, and it felt like they did that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, And I'm sure, like, that, you know, I'm sure in some ways that was not, like, the intention because with Michael Edwards leaving, it feels to like that just snowballed, it seems. Um, But, yeah, like, at at the peak of your powers, you have to, like, be like, okay, now we got to keep investing, not just, like, let's run with this, you know what I mean? Like, this midfield, like, I just don't understand how... And I told you, like, privately, like, justice for Harvey Elliott and Bicetich and... And Curtis Jones, because like players like that should not be like carrying the burden. Yeah, like, this is traumatic. You know what I mean for a young yeah. footballer. Um, and so yeah, there's just a lot, a lot going on at, at Liverpool, and I agree as as a neutral, I I don't I don't think it's as easy as like selling folks. Yeah. Well, speaking of. Liverpool um, and the league they'll be in next year, the championship. Uh, we wanted to Stop. check it. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> no, I, I kid. I think they'll stay up. Um, but we, uh, 
<laughs> no, we we did get a question um, from a, a good friend of uh, of the pod, um, Christian Canales at Fly One Three Zero Nine One on Twitter. He asked, uh, "Who is going to be the third team to come up from the championship at the end of the year, and who goes down from the Premier League?" Um, so, city aside, who else is going down? Um, no, I we've got the top of the championship. Um, Burnley and Sheffield United have separated themselves from the pack. Um, Burnley way, way out in front in in the lead. Um, but Sheffield United even 10 points clear of third place. So it does look like Burnley and Sheffield United will be will be up this year. Um from there, it gets extremely interesting as the championship often does. And from Middlesbrough in and Luton, who are level on points on 48, uh, in third and fourth respectively, down to Norwich in 10th it's a six point gap um and Sunderland are up there in ninth yeah amazing so third through six make the playoffs um with a chance to go up who's who's third in yeah I I mean I think it's a little bit of recency bias because they're in pretty good form um but I really quite like Michael Carrick's Middlesbrough um Middlesbrough have been in the Premier League recently. Uh, they, I, I just think we need more Northeast representation in the Premier League. Um, for sure. Now that Newcastle has become completely untenable <laughs> for the neutral, I think. <laughs> um, and while we wait for Sunderland to continue to get their stuff together, which it looks like they, I mean, they could potentially make the playoffs. I mean, it's yeah. very close, as you said. Um, they're, they're currently ninth. But I, I do like Middlesbrough. I think that they're just... I don't know. There's like a charm about them being from the Northeast and the Riverside stadium is a very charming stadium. I love that Michael Carrick is just going about his business. I mean, he, I think he, what was he undefeated as Manchester United caretaker? And then, <laughs> um, yeah, then quietly went to, to go uh, work in the championship after Chris Wilder, I think was sacked. Um, and he's just continuing on the good work um, that, that has gone on at, at Middlesbrough. They score a lot of goals. They're they're easy on the eye. And um, I'm a personal connection. Chuba Akpom, the former Arsenal say. boy, <laughs> sixteen goals, yeah, playing off the striker as a as a attacking midfielder. Sixteen goals, one assist. He's been incredible. Yeah. Um, and in in uh, Michael Carrick's four two three one. So, um, I would love to see Chuba and and Middlesbrough, uh, promoted. Um, that's what I'm going with. I don't know how like statistically accurate that that shout is but i would like to see it um but <laughs> yeah luton town is another interesting one too just because that, that'd yeah. be something different and luton have like a notoriously low budget compared to everyone around them so they're really doing the most with what they have even post nathan jones so yeah uh which gosh it what a what a story that would be if luton's in the Luton's in the Premier League and, and Southampton are Southampton or not. <laughs> uh not the type of story that you like to that you like to dwell on, but um it could be the reality for Nathan Jones. Yeah, I, I like both of those. Um because Middlesbrough, it's been a it's been a few years since the uh since since they were in the Premier League. Luton Town, obviously it's been 
I mean, I couldn't even tell you if they've been in the top flight before, so... <laughs> um, and then below them, Watford, West Brom, Blackburn Rovers, Millwall, Sunderland, Norwich. So, I mean, a lot of familiar names uh, towards the top of the championship, or in the top half, I should say. Um, I, you know, I would love to see... I don't think I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but, you know, I would I would love to see... Blackburn get back in the conversation. Um, True Barclays wives. Yeah. It's just, it. <laughs> the 90s are back, you know, in fashion, and, like, Blackburn being back in the Premier League would be, would just cement that. But, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, as it stands, it does seem like Middlesbrough. I, I, lo- I, I always like the idea of, a like, a team with firepower coming up. Because Middlesbrough are a a scoring team, they yeah. don't defend particularly well, but they like, I mean, not horribly. They're not they're not god awful, but they they do score quite a few goals, and I always prefer that to the like cautious defensive teams that fight yeah. their way through the playoffs on a you know one nil after extra time champion you know playoff final. Um, I'd like to see a team that that is willing to play football because you know we've I think we're getting oddly enough a very entertaining Burnley side um and uh shout out Vincent Company he's doing work yeah I mean this Burnley side it's worth it's worth saying I know the question is around like who's the third team up but this Burnley side is playing like out of this world like they're they have a plus 32 goal difference there's only they've only played 29 games lost only twice (laughs) two losses 58 goals for in 29 played it's i mean they they are lighting up the championship and it's uh it's nice to see a club that i um that were so despised for like negative and like physical football that they played coming back under basically a totally different brand. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like completely rebranding Burnley with Vincent company. I mean, like I'm looking at what Burnley have done this season. So two losses and those have come against promotion rivals, Watford and Sheffield United. Their only other loss this season was to Manchester United in the EFL Cup. Yeah. <laughs> Besides that, they are laying waste to everyone they meet. Yeah. And and that's I'm seriously, like there's not even really that many draws. Yeah. So they're just I mean, shout out shout out Vincent Company and what he's doing there, because I think that was a big risk, but clearly Burnley saw the vision. Yeah. Um and yeah, I mean this team is so different too. Like it used to be super like British. But there's like a, I mean, Zaruri, the Moroccans there. They've got, yeah. They've got people from Turkey, Democratic Republic of Council, Netherlands, Belgium, Brazil. They they have a Brazilian at Burnley. <laughs> what? <laughs> Louis Bayer, who I know from from being from Gladbach, he's on loan there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, they've just got like a really good mix of, Absolute, of players. Absolute scenes. Um... <laughs> No, it is it is cool and it, and it's I I think it's great that we're going to get a like a team back in the Premier League that is lighting up the championship like that because it feels like 
they could, you know, they could do something in the Premier League, like with this sort of this yeah. sort of performance. I mean, yeah, it it's uh no, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. And um I mean you mentioned you mentioned Zaruri, but Nathan Tell they I mean they spread the goals out too because it's Nathan Tella's eleven goals. Um Hedelazio's got ten. Jay Rodriguez revitalized in the championship. He's got nine goals. Zaruri's wow. got nine. Josh Brownhill from central midfield has five. Um Ian Matson, their left back, has four. So they spread the goals out. <laughs> Ashley Barnes has three, for God's sakes. So Wow. Yeah. Wow. He's got everybody playing. Um fair play. So yeah, shout out Vincent Company for for making us uh forget. And and we won't uh have to meme our our good friend Kenzie Arlt as hard about her Burnley fandom from now on. Burnley fan that I know, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um well let's uh let's talk briefly as we as we kind of wind things up here take a little trek around europe we've obviously spent some time uh in england but um italy this weekend Serie A. it does seem pretty much done and dusted from a title race perspective but there was still a huge game that regardless of standings in the table is always going to garner attention the derby della Madonina, inter versus ac milan and um this was a weird one because AC Milan in terrible form, like coming into this, they just look like they look completely lost, got absolutely shellacked by Sassuolo. Um, and well, Napoli before that, right? Like they got Mm. just undone. Um, so low on confidence and coming into this, but inter also not in particularly like great stellar form and you're thinking maybe it's a derby pioli could like rally the troops um and it just never came together for milan and and inter walk away with the one nil win um which felt like weirdly straightforward for a derby like this this is probably like the worst Derby de la Mendonina that I've seen <laughs> like in recent memory. Um, not that in- exciting for a neutral. I mean, the storylines are more exciting than the actual football was. Milan were dog shit. Like, I'm so <laughs> sorry to like, I try to be a little bit more eloquent than that and to- usually, but they were awful. Yeah. Awful. Like couldn't even string five yard passes together first touches were all over the place and and they had chances. I mean there's one chance where Rafael Leao is just speeding down the wing. Olivier Giroud's right there with him, squares it in the box, should be a tap in and it flies off Giroud like a basketball backboard. Like it just things like that were just it, the the basics. They were doing the basics wrong. Yeah. Um and I think Milan have had really weird recruitments. I mean, Origi's is not really like doing it for me. Um, and and um, also not only just recruitment, but like decision-making by Pioli is really weird. Like Rafael starts on the bench for the second game in a row. I can understand benching him for one game to say like, you know, get it together. Like we need more from you, but he is their best player. 
Yeah. You play your best players in a derby. Uh, and they really, Milan really didn't look all that threatening on the break until he came on. Uh, and so I, I don't know what's going on there. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of injuries too. I mean, when you don't have your championship winning goalkeeper, Mike Magnon, available yeah. due to injury and you're playing Tatarushanu, who, to be fair, wasn't bad in this game, but has been in recent uh, recent fixtures, it's just never going to be a good time. So Milan have just, they've been awful. So many things are, are just conspiring to to make this a really forgettable season for them and a really weak title defense inter you know they they have their troubles too i mean the milan screen i think is 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 still going on there looks like they're gonna have to to part ways with him and he starts this game <laughs> so it's like yeah. at least inter have taken that memo right that like you start your best players no matter what yeah uh and and you know they keep the clean sheet and and lautaro martinez he's he's got the swagger off a world cup win um and so inter were just you know I always thought Inter were going to win this one because they're just the best of the rest right now. But Milan are really in, in a shambles and just really wasn't watchable, to be honest. <laughs> Which is a shame because it, it feels like one of those fixtures that every time it's played, you should be able to flip it on and be like, this is going to be... Box office, yeah. Yeah, like regardless of how good it actually is, it should still be... At, there should be needle in it. There should be like... You know, just a lot of like the, I mean, obviously like the ultras on either side, like there's, there's all this stuff that should be like building to something hype and it just, it just fizzled, like just didn't, yeah. just wasn't, wasn't like particularly interesting, uh, unfortunately. Um, and like importantly, as you said, enter, you know, best of the rest, it is everybody just chasing Napoli desperately, but you could see, um, in Napoli's performance you know professional win against Spezia over the weekend but when you go back the following weekend to their win over Roma the the intensity of the players like around that it just feels like they now believe that this is their title to win and and um and maybe that like they won't be denied um as far as the implications for the rest enter pretty solidly in second Roma, like are, are up in third Lazio behind. Um, it's always nice to see Roma and Lazio that close in the table just for absolutely Capitale, uh, implications. (laughs) Um, Atalanta and, and Milan are level on points in fifth and sixth. And, within a point of Lazio. So there is obviously like still plenty going on there. And that top six is going to be extremely interesting for the remainder of the season. But the only reason that Milan are in sixth is because they've now lost three in a row and they have no wins in five. Um, So it there, they play Torino on Friday and it feels like they've got to start digging themselves out of this if they want to, remain relevant in the Champions League conversation because everybody else is at least maybe not being serious because I think everybody has had some like memeable results recently in that top six um but it feels like Milan like have to get it together (laughs) sooner than later or they could they could really risk uh like ending up well closer to Juve than to the Champions League spots yeah, and it, I mean it's going to get busy for all these teams too because the Champions League is 
back next week. Milan yeah. taking on Spurs. So, yeah, I mean, not looking good for Milan to be honest. They just they just look really bad, and it's weird because that that was what was so admirable about them last season is like just the will. Yeah, the willpower to get these results and that's just totally not there this season but yeah. hey I think you summed it up pretty well though this is Napoli's Napoli Scudetto and um, I mean I love it like I love the that we've had we're going to hopefully have four different winners the past four years so true true yeah it is it is looking like Napoli's to to get done um, which feels fitting in a in a year in which Argentina won the World Cup as well so for sure <laughs> yeah um not going super deep into it, but taking a quick look at La Liga, Mika, this is another one where it does feel like the distance is is being created and, you know, whether it was whether it was the lever pulling, whether it was, you know, <laughs> Drake, Spotify, whoever got the job done, Barcelona do look like they're probably gonna Well, they've been separating themselves anyways. It's it, it looked for a long time like Real Madrid were probably gonna be favorites again um but a couple of spotty results in barcelona are that team that's finding the way this season it seems like even in games where they don't look particularly impressive yeah no it's it's interesting because xavi is has created somewhat of like a defensive defensively strong team they keep a lot of clean sheets mark under tishtegan is playing out of his skin right now uh, and Real Madrid really have, I think, sealed their fate with that uh, loss um, to Mallorca, uh, 1-0. And Carlo Ancelotti said, well, now it's time to focus on the Club World Cup. So, okay. <laughs> like, sure. Don, sure, Jan. <laughs> Don Carlo just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, they might just go and win the Champions League. No big deal. Um, yeah. But, yeah, La Liga looks like it is a wrap. What I'm watching, because I'm petty, is if Sevilla are going to get relegated. And, I mean, down at that end of the table, it is very much possible. So, much like I didn't mention with Serie A, but Cremonese and Elche are kind of those teams in terms of... They are not in double digits for points yet, 20 games (laughs) into the season, so it is looking like their fates are sealed. However, in Spain, above Elche, Hetafe, Cadiz, and Valencia are all... One point, or you know, there is like three points separating Sevilla and any of those teams jumping ahead of them. So, yeah, Hitafe and Cadiz could still survive, like very, I mean, very believably. And Valencia and Sevilla are both in the danger zone. Yeah, two big, big clubs that could be in Segunda next season. So, I think they put Segunda games on YouTube, so that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. A team, well, two teams not in the danger zone, um, and and that I just wanted to shout out while we're here. The best of the rest, I guess you could say, Real Sociedad, uh, La Real, up in third, above Atletico, and uh, in the Champions League conversation, which is which is cool to see because we kind of we talked about Real Sociedad last year when they were top, and then they immediately became. I mean, they just could not win after we spoke about the fact that, like, hey, maybe this is a thing. Like, maybe Sociedad can keep this up. And then they didn't win another single game, like, the rest of the season, I'm convinced. 
Um, they've had a tough little run. Um, drew against Real Madrid, lost to Valladolid, which is not the best. Um, but they get Espanol next and a chance to kind of solidify things. They do have a four-point gap between them and Atletico Madrid. And then Viacano, fifth. I hope that Antonio Iraola will stick with them because he is rumored to be taking over at Leeds United, but he's been transformative for, for Rayo. So, yeah, yeah Rayo, Rayo to Europe. That's still on the cards. <laughs> um. And then, Mika, in, in in the way of closing things out, we we did want to touch on and got a question about the the one like top five league that does have a very very serious. And I I'm not talking a title race in the sense of two teams involved, but we're talking a title race with like six teams involved, um, and that is the Bundesliga against all odds. Uh, <laughs> we got a question from uh, from Eric. Uh, at Ebout 27, he said, you know, who do you b- believe will end the Bundesliga season on top? Do Bayern Munich figure it out? Does Union Berlin have it in them to finish top? Is this Dortmund's year to finally do it? And the thing is, I mean, in talking about this before we started recording, because we're like, we're looking at this and we're like, I mean, it could be any one of these teams that puts a run together and figures it out because Bayern top on 40 points union in second on 39 dortmund in third on 37 leipzig in fourth on 36 eintracht in fifth on 35 and sc freiburg on in sixth on 34 six points from first to sixth so two wins you know conceivably could put any of these teams top of the league um and in the midst of all of that, you have this insane battle for the Champions League places as well. Um, breaking down who gets it done, like, will could be its own thing. But I think, I mean, the story of the season so far has to be Union. Um, 19 games in, still second, uh, and giving Bayern a run for their money. Union are incredible. I mean, this is a team that was in the second division, like, not that long ago. The thing about Union is that they are really, like, dramatically overperforming their goal, their expected goals, and yeah. a lot of their goals come from set pieces. So you wonder if teams will get wise to that eventually, but it's February and they're still second, so maybe not. Um, yeah. And uh, Dortmund, like, I think Dortmund are always in the mix um, to touch on Eric's question more particularly. Sure. Obviously, Jude Bellingham is incredible. They haven't lost in, what, six games? Six straight wins. And I mean, I think two of those are friendlies, but. Um, yeah, four four straight in the league. Four though. straight in the league. Yeah. Like since they came back from the World Cup break, basically, they they just like don't lose. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, they're they're very good. And I like. I like the some of the pieces that they've added, um, like Rierson, um, Modest actually as a backup for Sebastian Allaire, who is back from um, that treatment that he had to have for testicular cancer. Did score a goal the yeah. other day, um, so that's always great to see. Um, and then Leipzig, like Leipzig are low key very dangerous. Like we know that's a good team, and yeah. um, I think 
Makahosa, like, obviously, he's in his element. He's from Leipzig, quietly doing a good job after the fallout from his pretty doomed Dortmund days. Um, but Fre- Freiburg and Frankfurt, like, Oliver Glasner, great coach. Christian Streich, great coach. Like, yeah. these are – this is, like, unexpectedly probably the league to watch down the stretch. Um, I think, though, like, at the end of the day, I think Bayern are going to be fine, and that's because – Bayern are so lucky. Like, how do you just have Jean Cancelo fall into your lap? <laughs> like, how do you make sure he falls out with Pep Guardiola so you can get him in? Like, and, and he's been outstanding. Um, yeah, so that's I think... just a market opportunity that, like, they could not have anticipated. And then they also, you know, address the Manuel Neuer catastrophe by signing the best goalkeeper available in the Bundesliga. And, and then they added Daily Blind for some extra veteran leadership. So I just think Bayern's... <laughs> transfers were the best by far of anyone in the Bundesliga and um I think that that carries them down the stretch I I tend to agree um yeah he's already he's already provided an assist in the Bundesliga and in the Pokal so two two assists to his name already for in Bayern Munich colors and I feel like he got there like two days ago so um literally <laughs> yeah, in 78 yeah, against Wolfsburg it, he provides one of the assists and then uh and then against Mainz in the uh in the cup as well. So, yeah, I mean, to have a player like that just presented as like as an opportunity is pretty insane. Um and for it to fill like an immediate urgent need with a one of the best at available like at his position it's, or not available one of the best like right backs in the world <laughs> truly so back wherever you want to play him or yeah or wherever yeah. um got no weak foot yeah i think the other thing to point out and this is not to rain on anybody's parade because literally anything could happen in the bundesliga but at the end of the day like Bayern do still have a plus 38 goal difference <laughs> The next closest is Eintracht with a plus 14. So, like, in terms of performing, like, performances, like, Bayern are still those guys. It's just a matter of, like, whether they continue to fall in these, like, winnable games, like, not getting three points. It's basically, like, counting on can they be frustrated and draw. Yeah, well, and then that quality also tells when they are they should be losing. Like, to Wolfsburg last time out, they should have lost that game. They came away with a 4-2 win. It's like, yeah. I mean, that'll, that'll give the coach some heartburn for sure, but, like, results-wise, table-wise, it makes no difference. It's three points. Yeah, put them on the board. But it is it it is absolutely the league to watch. And, and uh, I personally, just for just for – often as a palate cleanser and like <laughs> when I need wholesome vibes on a weekend because I've just watched Liverpool lay an absolute egg. Um, I, I watch Union because it is like, you can just feel like you feel good watching them and they're dramatic as hell. Like they score late goals <laughs> that like they, they don't, you could mostly turn Union games on in like the 75th minute because it's like whatever is going to happen is going to happen now um because they're just they they're yeah they find ways to to win these like close games late on and even you know um 
in uh in this this last game against against my Mainz it was Jordan Sabachu the American um in the 84th minute grabbing the winner um hell yeah p fuck gang yeah absolute scenes so that's that's my that's my call but um you know you can also watch Dortmund for you know if <laughs> If you're like, fuck Greg Berhalter, all my homies hate Greg Berhalter, <laughs> then you can watch Gio <laughs> Reyna come on in the 75th minute and score because that's what he does now. So, um, Very, very finally. It was a good weekend for uh, most Americans not named Jesse Marsh because Luca De La Torre scored Celta Vigo against my Betis, unfortunately, but he was yeah. very good. P-Fox scored. Tillman scored. Yeah. It was... It was a good weekend for some of our boys. So yeah. anyway, for a player pool that doesn't have any goal scorers, um, right? Sure yeah, had a lot of goals. Any. We don't have a Memphis Depay. So, uh, yeah. There's a in another. It, there's another timeline where that the Betis Vigo game gets gets a good half hour from us. But um, it uh, just go watch the highlights. <laughs> It, I I literally was bitching like a week ago about like I hope there's a tactical shift coming in La Liga. There's not enough goals. What have I done? <laughs> Five goal thriller, and two yeah. of the goals coming from a Celta youth product who just decided to burst on the scene. Okay, now we're now we've opened the conversation. He scores two goals and then had a stomach problem. So I'm like, you literally shitted on us. <laughs> <laughs> wow Gary Lineker type beat <laughs> for a brace and then go have diarrhea in the Vietnamese bathrooms I'm mad anyway yeah that's funny well um <laughs> on that on that note uh no we uh I think that about wraps it up obviously tons more to come this weekend there'll be um there'll be plenty more from us and hopefully we'll we'll get back on a more routine schedule i know we say that all the time but i think we'll i think we we can find a rhythm here um and uh yeah if you've enjoyed the episode you can find us on uh, all your major podcast platforms i mean i listen to podcasts on spotify but whatever floats your boat apple Podcasts, all that stuff amazon i think has podcasts now um everybody's got podcasts so whatever you use um mika wh- where do you listen to your podcasts i use pocket casts pocket casts um, yeah really nice. great probably the probably the best po- uh like app on android i would i would say yeah but anyway so pocket casts all that stuff we're on all those um so check us out hardcore football and uh you can find us on twitter and instagram at hxc football um and yeah until next time hope everyone has a good weekend watching some good footy and we'll be back uh to talk about it yeah see you later